up where we left off last week, Acts chapter 2. And if you haven't been around, we just, just a few weeks into a new series. Acts is an, is an important book in the New Testament. It's in the New Testament. It comes after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And it comes before all these letters to these churches all over the world. And it's, if we didn't have this book, it would be very confusing. How did this movement that's really in and around Jerusalem, how does it go into all these other different countries and cities? And Acts explains that, how the gospel began going all over the world. So we just started this a few weeks ago. And um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. If you don't have a, bu- a, a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin. The passage is right there. You probably saw in the news or on your feed a few weeks ago that they had the Golden Globes Award. And probably the speech that got the most attention was Meryl Streep's speech. And a lot of comment about that. People liked it or didn't like it or whatever. In a few weeks, there'll be the Academy Awards. I think about a month from now. And, you know, the Academy Awards are famous for people getting up. And and you would think, all right, this is where they get up and they just talk about the movie or the director or my fellow actors uh, or, you know, the theater program or the theater instructor in school that had such an impact on me and, and changed my life or the different award shows that we talk about the Broadway play or we talk about the TV show. But a lot of times what and again, what, what these shows are sort of famous for is not just who got what award, but what will they say? Because. Often they'll use that opportunity, kind of a bully pulpit, to say, look, there's a more important thing that I need to talk about right now. And whether you agree or disagree, they'll just say, this is, this is what I really need to talk about as I stand before you. Last week, we looked at the first part of Acts chapter 2. And this is a famous passage because in the Old Testament, there were these prophecies, I mean, not just one, that in the last days... Meaning, when Messiah comes, God is going to do something he's never done before. Instead of just pouring out his spirit on a prophet or a king or a warrior and anointing them to this particular task, he was going to pour out his spirit on his people broadly. The prophets promised it. John the Baptist came along and promised it. Jesus talked about it several times. And so in Acts chapter 2, it happens. And if you weren't here last week, we talked about this is the definitive end of what we would call the Old Testament period. Over. This is the beginning of the new covenant era. The Holy Spirit's been poured out. And weird stuff happened. Tongues of fire, little flames of fire came down, not just on the apostles, but on 120 people rested on their head. And they spoke in languages they had not learned. They just supernaturally verbalized things about God and things about Jesus in different languages to the hearers. And it was so weird and bizarre that people who saw it went, they've been drinking. And it's, like, it's just like now nine o'clock in the morning when this happens. So you'd think that when the Apostle Peter gets up to say something, and and that's what we're going to look at, the speech, the the sermon that he gives, stands up and interprets what just happened. You'd think, all right, so what's he going to talk about? It's obvious what he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about the Holy Spirit, right? That's not what he does. He talks about a person. And he does refer to 
The Holy Spirit has been poured out. But the Holy Spirit is not the main character of his speech. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name, upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades. Nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you moved people, directed people, energized and empowered people to write down just what you wanted written down. And that the very books we have, the very ones that you wanted preserved. Thank you for genealogies. Thank you for poems. Thank you for songs. Thank you for um, deep and mysterious images. Thank you for the Gospels. Thank you for law and promises, and thank you for this speech. And whatever it might be in us that keeps us from hearing, would you overcome that? Would you press through that and speak to our hearts? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. About 20 years ago, there was a movie that came out. Lead actor was Michael Douglas called The Game. came out in the late 90s, 97. And this movie was about, um, the main character is an investment banker, very wealthy, very put together. And he's estranged from his brother, his younger brother. And I believe he's also divorced. Successful, worldly. And he's coming up on his 48th birthday. And you find out that uh, he and his brother's dad had committed suicide when he was 48. And so his estranged brother gives him this gift. And the gift is, it's it's sort of a game from this firm. And you have to answer all these questions. You even have to have medical exams. And they, they take you through this barrage of examinations. And what he doesn't know is that this is about to take him into something that he, he's not going to know what's real and what's not real. And that's the movie. But you get to the end of the movie. Okay, now, spoiler alert, the movie's 20 years old. Okay, so I'm going to tell you how it ends. But you get to the end of the movie. And, and again, like he, even though you know there's some game going on, the movie's called The Game, you can't tell what's real and, not, and what's not real. But it finally comes to the point where he's lost all his money. All his Swiss bank accounts even have been, have been erased. Somebody knew his passcode somehow. And there's this scene even when he comes into like a a bar. I think it's in Mexico. He walks in and he's just looking around. This is like a very self-assured guy saying, can someone help me? Can somebody do something? Would anybody buy my watch and just help me? So at that point you think, wow, he's almost at the end of his rope. He is not at the end of his rope yet. When he's at the end of his rope, he's on top of a building. You think the movie's ending. It's about to end. But he thinks he's killed his younger brother just gave him that gift and he's so overwhelmed and traumatized that he stands at the edge of a building as his dad had done at that age and he jumps off and as he's falling his life flashes before his eyes and you see the images of his dad and him and his brother when they're little and he hits the top the glass roof of a building and he falls through it and he falls onto one of those giant stuntman balloon kind of bags in this ballroom 
And the bag is surrounded by all his friends, even, even people who were participants in the game. He thought he was dead. He thought he had killed his brother. He was utterly taken to the end of his rope. And the reason this firm will let you do this game is they want to take you that far so that you can actually change. Like, so that you can actually see things that you can't see otherwise. Okay, suffice it to say that for the last 2,000 years, that's what the Holy Spirit does in people. He does it in individuals, and He does it in communities. That He will take people to the end of their rope. And when He does that, and if He's done that in you, it can be extremely painful. But when He does it, that is not God bullying you. That is God rescuing you. And in this passage, again, we sort of have to put ourselves in the shoes of the people hearing this for the first time. They've never read Acts. They've never read a completed New Testament. They don't have the Christian creeds. This is just coming at them. But here's what happens. They see these bizarre things. Flames on the heads of people. Uh, People speaking in languages that they didn't learn. They're from Galilee. But they're speaking all these nationalities, languages, talking to them about God and Jesus. And Peter gets up, and instead of talking primarily about the Holy Spirit, he speaks about... What what did he keep saying in that speech? This Jesus. This Jesus. This one. And he speaks about him. And as he tells them these things, at first they are cut to the heart. And then what does God do? He rescues them. So I want to look at this speech... I don't think Peter gave, call it a speech or sermon. I'll just probably say sermon. I don't think Peter had three points. I have three points when I talk about his sermon, okay? I don't think he did. I think he just, the Lord moved him and he spoke out of his heart and his knowledge of the scriptures and his teaching from Jesus. But I'm going to have three points. So here's the three points. First off, this is Peter speaking to these people. You acted upon Jesus. God acted upon Jesus. God can act upon you. All right? You acted upon Jesus. God acted upon Jesus. God can act upon you. All right, first off, you acted upon Jesus. Uh, He says this very, he's very straightforward. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Look down in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that would be bad enough to be just confronted by somebody in this very powerful moment. Say, even though you weren't the one who actually like grabbed his arm and pinned it down on that piece of wood and nailed it in, you killed him. But then it gets worse. First off, what else does Peter say? Look in verse 22. And again, remember, in Jerusalem, and even though the people he's speaking to are from different nationalities, they're not, they're not all ethnically Jewish, they, they align with Judaism. They're native-born Jews and, and proselytes, people who became Jews. That's what they're doing in Jerusalem during a feast time. 
What does he say? Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. And what is he saying? It would be one thing if I was telling you about a man who was secretive and he had this little secret group, this little secret cabal, and you had to be in the little group to hear his esoteric teachings and see his sham miracles. That's not the case here. I'm talking about a man who traveled to your towns and your villages all throughout Judea and for no charge, just out of his love, would lay his hands on a sick person that no one could heal. And they'd be healed, not just relieved, healed. Like blind people would see. He would raise the dead and he would proclaim good news. I've seen where some New Testament scholars have said there must have been parts of Judea where during that time of his ministry, he must have eradicated certain diseases. And then if that weren't enough, and the last week of his life, he rides into Jerusalem during Passover when it's just full of people from all over and he teaches in public and he does miracles in public. All this was done out in the open. God was showing you this is not just a kook. He obviously has God's approval and power. And you still did it. And listen to how he, he, he addresses them. Uh, verse 14. Men of Judea. Verse 22. Men of Israel. Verse 30, uh, 36. Let all the house of Israel. What is, what is Peter highlighting? It would be one thing if this was done by Philistines. Or Egyptians. But it was done in Jerusalem. By his own people. What what does the Apostle John say at the beginning of his gospel? He came to his own. And his own did not receive him. And when you hear that, it's easy to think, yep, that's right. That's exactly what they did. For the last two millennia, what Christians have been forced to come to grips with. and And when they come to grips with this, this is the work of the Holy Spirit is that we did it. And when they heard it, what does it say in verse 37? They were cut to the heart. That happened 50 days before that, in that town. But you'll know the Holy Spirit is working in your life when He opens your eyes to the fact that we did it. And there's a song that we sing here, and a lot of churches sing, called uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. We sing it a few times a year. How Deep the Father's Love for Us, about how much God loved us to send His Son, Jesus. The second stanza says, and picture this and connect the dots to this passage. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. And then what's the next line? Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. When we, when we sing that together, what are we singing? Well, I'm so glad that Jesus came for this crazy, kooky world and those bad people out there saying, no, first off, he's up there because my sin is on him, not his sin. He had no sin. My sin is on his shoulders. But then we're singing this. And I am identifying with the people who are saying, crucify him, kill him. Martin Luther the reformer, he said, 
We carry the nails in our pockets. And, and you will know when the Holy Spirit is doing something in your life where it goes from, yeah, I think he died on the cross so that we can go to heaven to he's up there because of my sin to, you know what, for all practical purposes, I'm pinning him down and picking up the hammer. You acted upon him. That's the bad news. But what does Peter go on to say? God acted upon him. God acted upon Jesus. First off, he raised him. And he says this very clearly. Look in verse 24. God raised him up. And get this expression, loosing the pangs of death. And as I studied this this week, several commentaries brought up that, that Greek wording is really odd. It's almost the image of death being like a womb. And Jesus being the person in death's womb and death doesn't want to give birth to him. It doesn't want him to leave and he bursts out. He emerges from death because it can't hold him. He emerges from the tomb. Even though the cords of death are around him, he comes out alive. Uh, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. But this is a very Jewish audience. Look at what else Peter does. He cites the Psalms. Very familiar scriptures to a Jewish audience. He cites one of David's Psalms, Psalm 16, and he says, All right, think about what David said where it sounds like he's talking about himself, can David actually be talking about himself? Look in, uh, look in verse 25. For David says concerning him, meaning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Look in verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And he's not talking about like moral corruption. He means decomposing. A dead man decaying. If you just read Psalm 16 and you know that David wrote it, it seems like hey, he's writing about himself. And, but then Peter says what? Fellow Israelites, David died. Fellow Israelites, David's tomb is in our midst and his decomposed body is inside of it. He can't have been writing about himself. So who's he writing about? They knew Psalm 16. He actually calls David a prophet. We think of him as a king, leader, warrior, he says, but he was a prophet. He foresaw something. That a great holy one will come and he will not experience corruption. He will die, but he will not decompose because he will live and be at God's right hand. God acted on him. God raised him and God enthroned him. In our first study in Acts, we talked about the ascension and Jesus going to the Father's right hand. Look in verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. God raised Him and God enthroned Him. He raised Him and He enthroned Him. You know, I... Um, I take Friday as a day off. I know a lot of pastors take Mondays or Fridays. I usually do Friday. And I was talking to someone recently and I asked, hey, well, let me back up. What I've started doing when the weather's nice is I like to drive to some town I haven't been to within an hour of Greenville. And just kind of learn, 
just kind of learn, you know, learn my place. And so I was talking to somebody and I said, hey, tell me, this person travels in his work. What's a good little town that I might not have been to within an hour or so of here? And he said, you ought to go to Walhalla. And uh, I'd seen the sign for it. He said, it might be a little over an hour, but you ought to go to Walhalla. And I thought, I'm going to go to Walhalla. And I was told, get the fried chicken at the, you know, at the Main Street place, which is called the Walhalla Steakhouse, and it doesn't serve steak. <laughs> but it does serve fried chicken, and I highly recommend it to you. So I had lunch there, just kind of looked around, went in a couple of stores, sat and read for a little bit. But uh, this person also said, there's a place near there called the Stump Town Tunnel, or Stump House Tunnel. Go to that. And if you haven't been there, this is a place where in the mid-1800s, they were trying to make a rail line from Anderson to Knoxville. And so at this point in Oconee County, they were just trying to bore a tunnel through through this mountain. And uh, brought in all these Irish miners into the upcountry. And so it's the 1850s. They didn't finish it. And then the Civil War came and it was never finished. So you can just go into this tunnel. And I you know, looked it up online thought, well, it looks neat. It's a tunnel. So uh, finished lunch, drove up there, found it. It's a pretty day, pretty bright day. And so you can just walk into the tunnel. I thought, okay, this is great. It's 1,600 feet deep. I don't mean deep in the ground, just straight back. So think five football fields and some change no lights so i just i guess i just thought yeah you know it'd be, it'd be a little dim in here and i walked in and it's kind of embarrassing to say so don't tell anybody this all right this, this will just, just be between you and me i started walking in and i told dana after the fact i experienced like a visceral reaction that i hadn't felt since i was a kid and it's that feeling of you know I'm scared of monsters under the bed and I heard something in the room and I'm scared to look out, but I'm going to like rally my courage and look out. And then like the shadow from the nightlight looks like something on your wall, just this sort of visceral baseline fear. I didn't think about the fact that if you walk not too far into a tunnel that long, it just goes pitch black. So I just kind of started walking in and then all of a sudden went, what is this nightmare that I have signed myself up for? And just, you know, and then under the guise of the fact that there was water and get my feet wet, it's like, yeah, I'm just going to come back and have rubber boots or something like that. But, And I'm envisioning, you know, now people are going to be posting pictures of their four-year-olds who walked all the way back to the tunnel. And, you know, they'll post like, you know, hashtag braver than our pastor and stuff like that. But, man, that, it, it just, it was dark and I couldn't see the back and it was an unknown. And it, it just flew all over me. It's weird. We will all face a tunnel. Death. That's part of living in a fallen world. And being a fallen person. Is that we must die. And it would be one thing if among the many religious teachers of the world, there was this guy named Jesus. And he had things to say about death and life and eternity. But Peter's saying, "Uh uh-uh. This Jesus walked into that tunnel, into pitch black. And he, he was the one man who did not deserve to walk in there. He walked in there because he bore something of ours. And he walked in. And it could not contain him. He died. And he came out alive. God raised him. And God lifted him. And God enthroned him at his right hand. 
So what does that mean for us? I remember a pastor buddy of mine, who was when he was preaching in, in New York City, actually, he preached on the resurrection at Easter, and this, uh, this guy came up to him afterward, and I won't use the exact terminology, but he said, okay, so he rose from the dead, so blank what? Well, here, many ways to answer that. Here's one. If God enthroned him, then we have to deal with him. I mean, it means that he is not an option in the religious cafeteria. He is enthroned. Savior and King of kings. And I mean, you know how it is. You know how it is in your life that there's so much coming at you. It's like I've quoted my friend before who said, you know what? I've got so much going on in my life right now. My main two priorities in life are to make as much money as possible and to get the recycling out on Thursdays. Those are the top two priorities in my life. Just that there's so much of life coming at you that you feel like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I need to think about Jesus. I need to think about the Bible. I need to think more about my soul. I need to think about spirituality. I know. Let me just like catch my breath. It's folly. Folly. We must deal with him. He is not presented to us as just a great teacher. He is enthroned. Now, I really want you to hear this part because this is not just good news for them. This is good news for us. Okay, Peter just said, you acted upon him. And then God acted upon him. You killed him. God raised him. God enthroned him. But then Peter says this. God can act upon you. Put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself in the shoes of somebody. They don't have a doctrine of the Trinity. They don't have church creeds. They've never read anything that we call the New Testament. And, they, and Peter's not, probably not preaching in Greek or some other. He's probably preaching in Aramaic. And so what they just heard him say is, Yahweh sent you one that he showed to be Yahweh and Messiah, and you murdered him. And they're devastated. And so they say, what in verse 37? They're cut to the heart, and they say, what do we do? Which is the right response. What does Peter say? Does he, and I'm not being flippant when I use this phrase. I think this would be appropriate. Does he say, there's just hell to pay now? He says, Repent. And I want you to hear that word with a smile. Because repent might sound to you like, get your crud together. What is repentance? Turn to him. And I don't know anything in the universe that, that is this counterintuitive. You murdered Jesus. What do we do? Turn to Jesus. You ganged up on Jesus and you ran Jesus through a kangaroo court and you got Romans to do the dirty work. You killed Jesus. What do we do? Turn to Jesus. And be baptized. And we're used to baptisms. Jews weren't. That's what you did if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew. You'd undergo a washing, an oblation. But what does he say? You be washed and you identify yourself with a community that says we need to be washed by the Messiah. Go public. Turn to him. 
and come in. And you know what will happen? You may not get the optics of the flames. And you may never speak in a language you haven't learned. But you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. You, like little old you, you will be like one of those prophets like Elijah. Or one of those kings like David. You will just as much have the Holy Spirit in you and upon you as they did. Man. Who can have this? Could Peter have bent over backwards more to make this clear? Look in verse 21. And this is a quote from the prophets. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Go down to verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then get this, verse 39. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. There's so many beautiful theological tensions in this passage. Did you catch how Peter said, you know what? It was God's plan for you to kill Jesus. That was his definite plan. And you're culpable. Well, how do you put those together? He planned it. How are they culpable? He planned it. You're culpable. Whether you can work them out or not, both are true. You cannot, we cannot come to God unless he works in our hearts to come to him. Well, how do I know who's given that ability and who's not? Who, how do I know who gets the ability and who doesn't? He, he says, do not try to hack into my database. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These promises are for you and they're for your kids and they're for your kids' kids. They're for Americans. They are for non-Americans. They are for Anybody. Man, that's good news. Do you realize how much protesting and marching and posting and fussing is going on right now? And of course, everybody's got their different vantage point about it. And like they like it or they don't like it or they don't like how it was said or I agree in principle but not in the execution. Here's the thing. When this many people are upset, there must be something going on. About this topic or that. And if we had the time, we could sort of break those down and say, you know what? Here's at least some things where scripture says, yep, you ought to be upset about that. Do you understand that Christians have been complicit in all these things? Name it. That we who have the most light, we have been complicit in all these things. What, what if one day God really, really convicts you of that and you go, oh my goodness, I'm the problem. What's the answer? Turn to Jesus. For the first time or for the millionth time, turn to Jesus. We need cleansing. We need the Holy Spirit who can actually change people. And that's just what he offers. God can act on us. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we can only talk about these things because you first loved us. 
You saw our plight. You are merciful. You moved toward us. You sent your son. You raised him. You enthroned him. You sent your spirit. Turn us to you. We can't manufacture that turn. Those of us who know you and those of us who don't, give us that turn. And may it bear fruit in our lives and in our city. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.